So Les laid out for us what has to be, I'm sure, one of the most loved events in the life of Jesus as he lived with us here on earth. And we love it because we can relate we can relate to this woman who was caught in sin because we know that we have in our hearts and in our lives and in our actions and in our mind and in our everything a rebellion against God, distance from him and distance from all his rights. And sometimes we get caught and sometimes we don't get caught by other people, but we know in our true being that God Almighty knows every single thought, every single action, every single attitude. And we crave that sense of relief that we know that that woman must have felt, as Les said, as she looked into the eyes of Jesus, whom we know as God, and heard him say, neither then do I condemn you. We crave that. We create the sense that when the day comes and we stand in front of God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, in front of Jesus, our one who stands beside us as our brother and as our high priest, we crave to hear the words, in spite of ourselves, neither then do I condemn you. Because judgment is huge in our life and it's huge in our society today. I think I hear more about judgment today than I did you know, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, whatever it is. And we are especially judgmental about those whom we judge to be judgmental. It's this, it's this incredible irony that you, know, you hear all this whole big deal in our society of you know, don't be judgmental, don't judge and so on. But, but within that statement is this incredible judgment that we hear all of the time in the media, in conversation, in social media. Judgment plays a real big life on our, play in our life simply because judgment is real. You cannot escape it. There is light and there is darkness. There is right and there is wrong. And we judge according to those things. Now what we say is light and what we say is darkness, and what we say is right, and what we say is wrong, that differs between people I know, and there's a great divide in our society. But the truth is that judgment just simply exists. You cannot escape it. It's built within our very DNA. It is built within the reality that we face. And that's why this story of the woman caught in adultery is so powerful, because it gives us hope. That in spite of who we know we are to be, one day, somehow, and we believe it's through Jesus, one day, somehow, we will stand in front of the eternal judge and he will say, neither then do I condemn you. Now, here's the funny thing. Every single one of you, you've got a Bible with you. If you look on your devices, you'll see that this story about the woman caught in adultery, there'll be a bracket there which says, yeah, you know, uh, this really wasn't in there. When John wrote this, you know, all of the earliest manuscripts, it doesn't, like it's hundreds of years before this appears in the manuscripts that we have on the Gospel of John. <sighs> wasn't in there. Someone put it in later. Now, some people say that, that John wrote a second edition, and that it was John, you know, he kind of got reminded, because he was old by the time he wrote this thing. And he, oh, oh, I have to put that in, it's a great story. So, so, but here's the thing. Although it probably was not in the original writing of the Gospel of John, everybody, well, 
Almost everybody agrees, yeah, but it really happened. And there was this story, this event in the life of Jesus and in the life of the people of that society. There's this incredible event that happened and we've got to have it recorded somewhere. It's got to be in there because it is so, so very, very important. Well, where should we put it? Well, let's put it right here. Which, in, in a sense, it's just a weird, weird thing. Uh, you know, we're kind of going through this whole deal, and we're in the middle of, of, of the, uh, the Feast of the Tabernacles. We've been here for a few weeks now as we go through these times of signs and controversies. As John, you remember this whole court case, and John is bringing forth witnesses and so on. And, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, you remember, it kind of had three main things. They lived in booths and you know shelters that they put in they had this this incredible uh, water uh, ceremony which happened daily we looked at that last week and then they also had this deal with with light and the lighting of these big candle arbors that filled all of Jerusalem with light and they said that you know if, if you hadn't seen this celebration if you hadn't it became like a wonder of the world and right in the middle of this is this story and if you if you take out that story you can see that actually you know from from 752 through 812 you could just read that along and you'd never know that there was something else supposed to be in there it just flows right through so why did they choose to stick this in the middle of this passage why was it put there I think it's because in the midst of this theology of booths and water and light this is theology lived out. You might remember that we said that in the Feast of Tabernacle there was a saying that the rabbis had and the saying was this, all were to be welcomed because Yahweh welcomed all. That was a saying for the Feast of Tabernacle. We saw last week how the nations, you know, they figured they'd come to Jerusalem at the time of the Tabernacle. And so there's this saying that, listen, the whole point of Tabernacle is one of the things you've got to remember is that Yahweh wants to welcome everybody. And, this, and so because Yahweh wants to welcome everybody, we should welcome everybody, no matter who they are. Because the Feast of the Tabernacles is all about God's presence with us. It's all about God wanting to give us the living water. It's all about God wanting to give us light for life, the light of life. And everybody needs that. And so this woman is the prime exhibit A of somebody that needs what Tabernacles is all about. Because it's going to give Jesus this opportunity to talk about judgment and so all are welcome and all are facing death and all need the water of life and all need the light of life and this happens you know it's interesting because the candelabras you know we talked about how those big candelabras and you know that had this big ceremony and those candelabras were in the court of women court of women and this is where Jesus is teaching, as you'll see when he talks about, you know, this has happened where the treasury was. That's saying, yeah, this is in the court of women. And Jesus' concern is for women. And this is part of that whole deed, perhaps especially women who are being oppressed and pushed aside by those who are powerful. And we all need this light in her life. And we need that same light and hope in the face of judgment because she was brought before Jesus for judgment now it took me a while I was trying to figure all this out and it wasn't until you know way late in the week of meditating on this and studying about this and praying about this that that this whole first half of this chapter 8 is all about judgment 
It's all about judgment because judgment is inescapable in our life. And this woman comes to face judgment from Jesus. She's already faced judgment from those that brought her. And the, the people that brought her, as Les said, this is a setup by the, by the religious leaders, and they're putting Jesus under judgment. And we're going to see that Jesus actually turns this around and says, you may think that it's me that's under judgment in your mind in this court case that the whole gospel of John is all about, deciding do you believe or not believe these claims of Jesus, but actually it's you who are under judgment. And unless you're careful, that judgment will become negative. And what we're going to see as we go through this, centered in this story, is that God Almighty is a reluctant judge. Reluctant in the sense of bringing negative judgment. Reluctant in the sense that the heart of God is to bring condemnation to no single person on the face of the earth, whoever has lived or whoever will live. And this whole passage is revealing the heart of the Father, the heart of the Son, the heart of the Spirit in the reality of judgment and how God wants to handle judgment and the judgment that God wants to hand down over your life and my life. And reluctantly, perhaps, sometimes a judgment that God does not want to hand down on our lives. So, Follow along with me and see how, we, how, how, how this passage unfolds, founded and growing out of this story of the woman caught in adultery. Let's pick it up in verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then the Pharisees challenged him, here you are, appearing as your own witness, therefore your testimony is simply not valid. But Jesus answered, hey listen, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you, you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards, see, judgment. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are true because I'm not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it's written that the testimony of two witnesses is true, and I am one who testifies for myself, and my other witness is the Father who sent me. He starts off, I am the light of the world. This whole light festival that we've been talking about for a couple of weeks that happens at the Feast of Tabernacle, that whole deal, it really is about me. I am the light of the world. I am the one that's going to spread light wherever I go. Now this theme of light, I mean, if you've spent five minutes in the Bible, you know that it, it, it kind of runs through the whole passage of, of, of scriptures. Because light in the Bible is associated with the presence and the work of God. The whole thing opens up with that, right? In Genesis chapter 1, verses uh, 1, verses 1 through 3. Let's, let's just refresh our mind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth 
was formless. The earth was in chaos. That's, that's really what the idea is. The earth was in chaos. It was formless and it was empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. I love what Matt Chandler points out about this whole thing in the sentence structure. What he said is that, that here's, here's this world that, that's full of chaos and darkness and, and it's void. There's no life there. It's just, it's just kind of there. And what happens with these words, God said, let there be light. And all of a sudden, that which was in chaos began to take shape. And that, that which was in darkness, darkness was set on its heels and pushed back a little bit. And that which was void, that which was empty, began to be filled with life. And what Jesus comes and he says is when he says, I am the light of the world, he's saying, we go back all the way to Genesis. And where there was chaos in this world and where there is chaos in your life, I can bring form to it, I can bring shape to it, I can bring purpose to it, I can bring it to something that is no longer chaos but is whole and is moving forward. And where there is darkness in this world and where there is darkness in your light, in your life, I can push that back. And I can bring the hope of light to the midst of the darkness in your heart, in your relationship in your city, in your province, in your country, in this world, in the cosmos, I can push that back. And where your life feels empty and hollow and without purpose and where it feels like you're just kind of going through the motions, I can fill that with life because I'm the light of the world. And we're the Father did through me at the beginning. Now I can do in you. And then we, you know, we carry on and we just continue on with this theme of light and we get to, to Exodus, you know, Exodus chapter 13. And, and this is where this whole light ceremony from the Feast of Tabernacles comes because Tabernacles is the wandering in the wilderness, right? And what we, what we had there, you remember how the story went? By day, the Lord went ahead of them. This is as they were escaping, you know, escaping from Egypt and going towards the promised land. And by the day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way. And at night, a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night, so that they could know that God was present with them, so that they could follow his leading out of slavery, out of darkness, out of captivity, into a place of life and light and fruitfulness and delight. And it was this, remember this whole thing about the festival of lights. That's the one where, where they would, they'd have that life. Remember I said, you know, they'd be singing and there was, you know, they'd be doing the fire stick juggling act and this whole kind of thing. You know what Josephus, Josephus was a contemporary historian at the time. And this is what he says. He said, you know what? That, uh, he, here's the quote. Of the people at the festival of light, the greatest and wisest danced all night. He was saying, he said, hey man, if you want to know the measure of spirituality, you want to know the most spirituality, the most spiritual people, the ones that are most in touch with God, the ones that understand who God is and what this light's all about, they are party animals, man. They dance all night. And if you could only make it till 4 a.m., you're a pansy. You don't have the spiritual sense to understand the celebration of things that happen because if you really grasp if we really grasp who God is and the deliverance that he wants to bring to us and the hope that he has, 
and the freedom that he wants to bring into your life, if you really grasp that, you will dance all night. Man, I love that. I love that. And Jesus says, that ceremony, that light ceremony, that cause, that reminder of celebration, that's all about me. Because if you really know who I am and you really understand my love for you and my care for you, you will dance all night. And then you can go a little bit further on and we think it's Christmas. Because you can get another passage in, we mostly have it at Christmas time in Isaiah chapter 9. Because remember, that a lot of this question was, well, you know, where is Jesus from and who's it? All that kind of stuff. But listen, it says this in, in Isaiah Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. Can any prophet come out of Galilee? And we saw that last week. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And you have enlarged the nations, tabernacles, the nations were going to come, and increased their joy. They rejoiced before you as people rejoiced at the harvest. It's a singing and dancing. As warriors rejoiced when dividing the plunder. And then comes the passage that we're most familiar with. For unto us a child is born, to us a sign is given, and the government, the lordship, the judgment will be on his shoulders and he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end and he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice with right judgment, with justice and righteousness from that time on forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I mean, that's just a few, but this, this theme of light that runs through, if you're going through the Old Testament, uh, light pretty much always symbolizes God's presence, his rescue and his salvation, and his right guidance and revelation. And Jesus is saying all of that stuff that's in the history of Israel, that's in the history of the cosmos from creation on, I am the fulfillment of all of that hope and all of that joy and all of that expectation and all of that expression of judgment. And then, of course, what John does is he's going to go all the way back and say, I'm going to tell the story again. Do the gospel of John begins? Do you remember how it begins in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4? In the beginning was the word. Oh, sound like Genesis again. Sound like a time for the light to dawn again. And the Word was with God. And the Word who is Jesus was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life. And that life was the light of all humankind. 
And Jesus is gathering all of that up and saying, that's who I am. I am the fulfillment of all of these expectations and all of this hope. And so, of course, with this claim, with this incredible, almost unbelievable, and for some people, unbelievable claim, we're back in court. And the religious leaders that thought they were going to trap Jesus with this story, uh, they come to them with this accusation, you are giving false testimony. You see, the law said that if you're going to accuse somebody, there had to be two witnesses. There has to be two testimonies because anybody can lie. But if you've got someone to corroborate your evidence, if you've got somebody else to do that, then we know it's the truth. And the fact is, if you make a statement and you don't have a witness with you, that's probably because you're a liar and you can't find a witness. And so what they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, you're just saying this for yourself. There's no evidence that you're the light of the world. There's no evidence that you're fulfilling all of these things. There's no evidence that you've got the right to say to a woman caught in adultery that neither do I condemn you because you are standing all by yourself. And Jesus' response is, you judge me as being a liar of bearing false testimony? Let me tell you something. Your judgment is wrong. Because I am a witness, but so is my father. And then he goes on with this incredible, incredible statement. I judge no one. What a statement. In light of how he dealt with this woman caught in adultery... He's saying to these religious people, these religious leaders, these spiritual giants, oh, your judgment just results in death. My judgment will just result in life. I judge no one. What he's doing is he's giving a foreshadowing of saying, look, this is is what I'm, my whole point in being here is because God my Father, God Almighty, is a reluctant judge when it comes down to any kind of condemnation. I didn't come to her to do this. He's going to say this in chapter 12. Let's put it up here. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I don't judge that person. Why? For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to say to every single person who ever lives. Neither then do I condemn you. Neither then do I judge you. And it's true. Because my second witness to this is God, the Father. My Father stands with me. Well, then they come to this whole big question then, oh, what are you talking about, your Father? Verse 19. And then they said to him, huh, where is your Father? You don't know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you'd know my father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple courts. Near the place where the offering was put, the the courts of the women where every Jew could come. Yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. He's in control of this whole deal. God is in control. So they're coming to Jesus and what they're actually saying is, you're illegitimate. 
And, you know, I was listening to, to one lecture and he talked about how in, how in the Middle East, um, you've got to be so, even today, you've got to be so careful. If you're going to ask somebody about their father, you've got to say it in a particular different way because you want to stay very, very far away from saying to somebody that you are an illegitimate child. And what they're doing when they're coming to Jesus, what their accusation is, when you're coming, you say to the father, where is your father? They're again just trying to say, we judge you as illegitimate. We judge you as wrong. We judge you as an outcast. And Jesus makes this incredible statement. He says this. If you knew me, you would know my father as well. Do you see what he's saying? What he's saying is what you see in my heart and how you see me treat this woman caught in adultery and how you see me treat people who, who blow it in big ways. That way in which you see me treat them, that is how God the Father, God Almighty, wants to treat them. The words of God the Father that desires to speak over every single person is, neither then do I condemn you. That is the heart of God. Somehow we've got this weird theology, somehow kind of creeps in us, like God the Father, the big guy wants to condemn everybody, but Jesus jumps in the middle and stops the Father's wrath or whatever. No, Jesus is saying, listen, if you understand my attitude towards those who are broken and caught in sin and can judge and condemn even by everybody else, if you understand my heart towards that person, then you understand the heart of God the Father himself. Because I'm just revealing a God who is reluctant to judge negatively and condemn. But your attitude, Pharisees, your attitude is putting you in grave danger because your time is limited. Now you've got to understand what's going on here <clears throat> is that we've spent you know, all of this time with Jesus trying to bring forth witnesses, Jesus trying to warn people, hey, this is where it's at, this is who I am, this is what I offer, will you believe in me, will you believe in me? And he's, he's sort of going along, and he's giving stern and stern warnings, and now, and now what's going to happen is, if you understand the Gospel of John, all of Jesus' ministry is kind of like in this part here. And the, last, the whole last end of the Gospel of John is the last week of Jesus' life. I'm trapped is the last week of Jesus' life. And so if we understand what John's going on, that Jesus has been building and building and building, pleading with people, trying to get people, this is the sign, this is the witnesses, look at what I'm doing, will you believe, will you believe, will you believe? And now he's come to the point where it, there's not long to go. And he has to warn these people, not in a sense of hatred, but in the sense of the desperation of a God who wants everybody to come to him. In desperation, he says to them, listen, you've got to understand, your time is limited. Let's take a look, verse 21. <clears throat> once more, Jesus says, once more, get that once more. I'm going to try one more shot. Here's one more try. I'm going away. I'm not going to be here forever. You're not going to get a forever chance to come to me. I'm going away and you will look for me. And I'm just terrified you're going to die in your sin. Where I go, you cannot come. And this made the Jews ask, is he going to kill himself? Because you see, 
Jewish theology, uh, suicide is one of the worst things that you could do. There's a particular place of judgment for those who commit suicide. And so once again, even, even in the face of Jesus' desperate cry, hey, listen, your time's running out, even though they continue to condemn him. Is that why he says, where I go, you cannot come? But he continued, you're from below, I'm from above. You're of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you don't believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. It's a warning. It's a desperate cry from the heart of God. If you will not believe I am, you're going to die in your sin. And that's the last thing that I want to happen to you. But Jesus, of course, when he's saying I'm going away, he's talking about his death and his resurrection as in ascension. And he's saying your time is limited. Your opportunity to believe in me is limited. The opportunity that you have, is, is, it, it's short. You can run out of time. And in this case, he was talking about before he was killed, but of course, for each one of us in lives, we've got limited time. Preschool and 10 or whatever it is. To decide whether or not we believe that Jesus is, I am, or not. The point is, he's been so patient. And these words are intense because he's desperate for these people to come and to believe in him so that they can escape death. And they just accuse him of going to kill yourself. And he says, listen, don't you understand? It's only if you believe in me will you get out of this mess. If you do not believe, I am that's actually what the text actually says it's not I believe I am here it's actually if you don't believe I am or of course we know in John who what I am is it goes back to Exodus right with Moses who's God shall I say that you are tell them I am sent you if you don't know that then you're going to die in your sins and so their response is just saying like who are you to talk to us like this look at it verse 25 who are you? They asked. Look, I'm just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. In the face of their opposition, in the face of the continual accusation, judgment on him, he still keeps trying. I'm the one I've been telling you from the beginning. My whole message has been the same. And then comes this strange statement. I just finished saying it to nobody, but then he says, listen, I have much to say in judgment of you. But he who sent me is trustworthy. And what I've heard from you, from him, I tell the world. They didn't understand that he was telling them about his father. So Jesus says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me because God does not abandon his he has not left me alone for I always do what pleases him and even as he spoke many believed in him who are you they said because this whole talk about you know your father and you you are getting awfully close to blasphemy if you don't believe I am what kind of language is that 
And even if we don't take seriously that, that Jesus meant I am in this case, because it could mean that, you know, just I am here. It could mean that. But even if we don't take that seriously, they, from their perspective, he was causing blasphemy. And they, they'd said the same thing back, you might remember, in John chapter 5, verse 18. He said, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, which he's doing again, but that made him equal with God. And Jesus says, listen, I am the one who comes from the Father. You keep judging me, but if you do that, it will lead to your negative judgment because I am from the Father, and you think that I'm under judgment. You think that I'm the one that's on trial, but actually it's you that is on trial, and the judgment that is going to come down upon you is lies in your hands. Please do what I want. Please believe that I am with all of my mercy and my grace and the gift of life and the gift of light and the Holy Spirit and all of these things that I've been telling. Please believe this. Because if you continue to judge me as a blasphemer, as a false teacher or whatever, bad things are going to happen. And I know you're going to do that. Because I know that you're going to lift me up. And that whole language of, of being lifted up that we see here, first and foremost, of course, it means it's the lifting up on the cross. He says, when you see me lifted up, when you see me die, that's going to show that I am. But there's not only this, this thing about being lifted up in crucifixion, there's also a glorification that takes place. Because he says, when you lift up the Son of Man and, and the people that understand the Scriptures and, and these people that were listening, they would know that that's a reference to Daniel 600 years before. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has this vision. And he says, listen, in my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence and he was given authority, glory and sovereign power and all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And in this, this is the language of being lifted up but the way in which Jesus, by the way, he's coming on the clouds and that's notice he's going to heaven but <laughs> this language of exaltation happens because he's first lifted on the cross and being lifted on the cross causes him to be lifted on high in glory and given dominion over all things so you can keep calling me a blasphemy Mr. Jesus but this is the unfolding of the plan of God and I'm simply doing what the Father has sent me to do. So do you see this? Do you see how this theme of judgment runs throughout this whole first part of this chapter? Because God in Christ is trying to reveal the heart of God towards those of us caught in sin. His heart is to say to each one of us and each one of the people that we love and each person that has ever walked on the face of the earth, the heart of God is to say, then neither do I condemn you. And I pass no judgment 
on anyone. This is God's heart. This is his desire to be light, to bring life and guidance. And he says, listen, please do all that you can to avoid this negative judgment. Believe that I am because the day will come when there will be much to be said in judgment, verse 26. And if you do not come to me with a broken heart and a voice that stutters because you've broken the heart of God, you're dead in your sin, You're dead in your sin. Because you wouldn't take the greed I am. And in that judgment, the shattering agony in the heart of God. Because his heart, his heart is to say, you trusted in Jesus, the Son of God, the one who is I am, the one who is lifted up on a cross to suffer in our place, to pay for our rebellion, and is now exalted at the right hand of the Father, still interceding on our behalf, still sending forth the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and our minds and our beings. Come to the sin. Come to the Son. Because I want to say to you, as God Almighty, neither then do I condemn you. Now that is good news. That is gospel. That's the kind of news that should make us want to dance all night. Because it is the heart of the Father displayed in the Son. And this light has come. Almighty God, how we thank you for this revelation of your heart through the Son. And the world is full of judgment. And it varies through history what's judged right and what's judged wrong. But your judgment is eternal. And you say what is right and what is wrong. And we live our life in, in the face of that and we realize every single one of us steps into the darkness. can be caught in sin and is caught in sin by your all-seeing eyes. And that can make us shiver in terror as this woman likely was. As she huddled before a man who she was yet to learn was God. And we identify with her because we know ourselves 
And we desperately need to hear the words. The words that you are desperate to speak over us. I do not condemn you. Because the sun was lifted up. Was crucified. And now reigns in glory. To shed his light throughout the world. So Lord, for those of us who have not yet believed, open our hearts, open our eyes, wash away the preconceived ideas we may have, and help us to see the heart of the Father because we have seen the Son. And God, for those of us who believe that Jesus, you are the I am. Help us to dance all night. Let the most holy and wisest amongst us dance all night with joy because the light has come. Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.